The new season of Famous Fates, titled Falls from Grace, is here. Every Wednesday, we feature two new episodes that focus on a different scandalous figure from history. If you enjoy the episode you're about to hear, head over to the Famous Fates feed and give a follow. These episodes are all free and only available on Spotify. In 1946, the founder of The Hollywood Reporter named prolific screenwriter Dalton Trumbo among a list of communist sympathizers in Hollywood. This effectively blacklisted Trumbo and sent him on a path for prison, exile, and ultimately, redemption. If you'd like to hear today's other episode on the tragic circumstances surrounding the fall of Irish poet Oscar Wilde, Head over to the Famous Fates feed on Spotify and subscribe today. In 1943, though the exact date has been lost to history, celebrated screenwriter Dalton Trumbo made a momentous decision for completely mundane reasons. He joined the Los Angeles Communist Party, not because he held great affection for Mother Russia, nor because he was particularly passionate about Marxism. No, Dalton changed political parties for a simpler reason, to support his friends. As he submitted his membership paperwork to the party, Trumbo smiled to himself. He felt he was making history at a key moment for his country. Though he wasn't a passionate communist believer, Trumbo was sure of one thing. A communist party had every right to exist in the United States, whether or not the established parties wanted it there. Unfortunately, Congress disagreed. Trumbo's change of political party would soon lead him to live out his worst nightmares and create his best work. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 2 of Famous Fates Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less than savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry. They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. This week, we're covering writers whose powerful words couldn't save them from the public's wrath. In this episode, we're discussing Dalton Trumbo, a screenwriter who wrote some of his generation's best-loved films, despite being imprisoned and blacklisted for his communist sympathies. We'll dive into Trumbo's career and controversial politics after this. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. 
Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Nobody could ever call Dalton Trumbo a quitter. Before ever making a dollar from his writing, he penned dozens of short stories and six novels, and all were rejected by publishers. But with every rejection, he just wrote more. Trumbo held on to the stubborn belief that someday he'd support himself with his writing. In 1931, at the age of 26, it finally happened. A humorous article of his that mocked hoity-toity film critics was published in Film Spectator magazine. Though Film Spectator couldn't afford to pay Trumbo, that first piece drew the attention of Vanity Fair, where he published another piece. He also found paid work as a staff writer at Hollywood Spectator. Soon, Trumbo became in demand for his sharp, sarcastic essays. He began making enough money to quit his job wrapping bread at Los Angeles' largest bakery. When Trumbo left his bakery job in 1933, he was earning $18 a week, or about $355 in today's money. That was actually a pay cut, down from $40 a week when he started in 1925. Trumbo never forgot the lesson he learned from the Depression-era drop in his wages. If a business can pay people less, it will. By the time he was hired at Warner Brothers as a screenplay and story reader in June of 1934, Trumbo was dedicated to the budding labor union movement. He began secretly working with his colleagues to organize a reader's guild. The next year, in 1935, Trumbo's first novel was published. Well, it was the seventh novel he'd written, but the first to be published. It was called Eclipse, and it got Trumbo noticed at Warner Brothers, where he was quickly upgraded from reader to writer. He celebrated his 30th birthday as a professional screenwriter, a pretty significant upgrade from Bread Rapper. In 1936, he had two produced films under his belt. His bosses were happy enough to give him a raise to $150 per week, worth about $2,770 today. Soon, Trumbo got involved with another union, the Screenwriters Guild, or SWG, which would later become the Writers Guild of America. The growing SWG enraged producers, who feared they'd have to pay writers higher wages if they bargained collectively. According to Trumbo, Jack Warner, one of the eponymous Warner brothers, personally told his writing staff that the guild was led by communists. This wasn't true, but it might have been the first time anyone linked Dalton Trumbo to communism, though it wouldn't be the last. In 1936, when he was 31, 
Trumbo was fired from Warner Brothers for refusing to leave the SWG for a competing, toothless union that was organized by producers. The National Labor Relations Act of 1935 made firing someone for joining a union illegal, but Trumbo kept his mouth shut, perhaps out of fear of being blacklisted. Trumbo quickly found a new screenwriting job, this time at Columbia Pictures. The head of the studio, Harry Cohn, warned Trumbo that he had indeed been put on a blacklist after his falling out with Jack Warner, but Columbia hired him anyway. This new gig kicked off a very productive few years for Trumbo. He stayed with Columbia until October of 1937, when he signed a one-year deal to write for MGM. Shortly after that, he signed with RKO. Not only did he write or contribute to eight produced films between late 1936 and 1938, he tried his hand at playwriting and published another novel, Washington Jitters. He was also prolific on the personal front. In 1938, he married 22-year-old waitress Cleo Fincher. Soon after the wedding, the Trumbos had the first of their three children. To give their growing family more room and himself more privacy to work, Trumbo bought a 320-acre ranch a few hours outside of L.A. The unorthodox move paid off. In 1939, when Trumbo was 34, he etched his name into the lexicon of great American writers with his third novel, entitled Johnny Got His Gun. Inspired by Trumbo's memories of growing up during the First World War, the book tells the story of a soldier who was horrifically maimed in that conflict, having lost his limbs, ears, nose, mouth, and eyes. The central character questions whether or not he can still consider himself to be alive. So hardly a nice, light beach read, but America embraced the book anyway. It sold 18,000 copies, skyrocketed up the bestseller lists, and won a National Book Award for Most Original Book of 1939. It also won him plenty of fans in Hollywood, including iconic actor Clark Gable. In Washington, D.C., though, the book was received less warmly. The anti-war novel and Trumbo's subsequent invitation to speak at the Southern California Youth Rally for Peace put Trumbo on the FBI's radar. The Bureau labeled him a potential communist and began keeping a file on him. Yet again, Trumbo was flagged as a communist without showing any clear interest in the party itself. In fact, he was a strong supporter of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat. While the FBI kept tabs on him, Trumbo kept writing. The National Book Award helped Trumbo work his way up to better writing assignments. In 1940, at the age of 35, he wrote the screenplay adaptation for Kitty Foyle, a romantic drama about a working-class woman. Not only was the movie RKO's biggest commercial success of the year, it attracted awards nominations like Flies to Honey. For his writing, Trumbo was nominated for Hollywood's highest honor, an Academy Award. A National Book Award and an Oscar nomination catapulted Trumbo to the top of the screenwriting game. He was a hot commodity, despite executives' concerns about his pacifist politics. He left RKO and worked for Paramount, 
earning $1,250 per week, almost $20,000 today. Trumbo may indeed have been a pacifist, but he wasn't a dogmatic one. He was independent to a fault. He hated to let anything control him, even his own beliefs. In 1941, when Hitler's army invaded the Soviet Union, Trumbo supported the United States' entry into World War II. He hated war, but still declared that, quote, to be anti-war does not mean that one is willing to let the world be turned into a concentration camp manned by book burners and Jew gassers. Even as the Second World War raged on, Trumbo's star kept rising as did his salary. Pretty soon he was making $3,000 each week, or about $45,000 in today's money. Invitations rolled in to attend the most exclusive parties and rub elbows with the industry's biggest stars. He and his family bought a house in Beverly Hills, but Trumbo preferred to keep to himself and focus on his writing, even though he was the hottest thing going in Hollywood. This cachet made him a particularly valuable recruit for the Los Angeles Communist Party. Four of his best friends were already members and encouraged Trumbo to join. They promised he wouldn't have to change his politics or even how he voted. The local party was far more focused on fighting fascism than on a communist revolution. In fact, party members were mostly supportive of President Roosevelt. The exact date is disputed, but at some point in 1943, 38-year-old Trumbo shrugged and signed his name to an L.A. Communist Party membership card. Maybe it was out of support for his friends, or perhaps because he didn't like seeing communism stigmatized in the United States. Either way, Trumbo believed Americans had a right to choose their political party affiliation even if it fell outside the mainstream. As a newly minted communist, Trumbo made a nuisance of himself. He rarely attended party meetings, and when he did, he tended to show up drunk and shout about his disagreement with communist dogma. In fact, his most enthusiastic contribution to the party was a 30-page treatise on why writers within the communist party should question party leadership more often. To keep Trumbo too busy to criticize them, party leadership appointed him to a special group for communists in the film industry. Most of that group's organizing work was for Roosevelt's 1944 re-election campaign, which Trumbo supported just as ardently as if he'd remained a Democrat. Drunk at meetings, uninterested in the party platform, and spending all his time on Democratic campaigns, Trumbo was not quite the red menace that politicians warned fearful citizens about. But the FBI was still keeping an eye on him, as they had been since 1939. From their point of view, he was becoming more radical and more dangerous. Trumbo wouldn't realize he was being watched for years to come, but when he did, the fallout would destroy his reputation and his career while, ironically, also inspiring his greatest creative work. That's coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now back to the story. In 1943, against the backdrop of World War II, 38-year-old Dalton Trumbo joined the Los Angeles Communist Party. Though he wasn't terribly active or popular in the party, the FBI considered him potentially dangerous. They'd started keeping a file on him in 1939 after he published a successful anti-war novel, and that file was steadily growing. But Hollywood cared more about Trumbo's status as exceptionally lucrative. Even as rumors began to swirl about his communism, he kept getting plum gigs. Some of his best work during this time was, oddly enough, in pro-war movies. Though he hoped for what he called a democratic peace in the future, Trumbo hated Hitler and did anything he could to encourage American troops. His war dramas, A Guy Named Joe and 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, even got the attention of the Secretary of State, Edward R. Statinius, Jr. Statinius invited 40-year-old Trumbo to come to San Francisco and script his remarks for the Secretary's 1945 National Radio Address. Trumbo complied, though he found he disliked political speechwriting. His work got rewritten and mangled even more in Washington than in Hollywood. It seems the Roosevelt administration viewed Trumbo as a loyal, patriotic American. This perception was further cemented later in 1945 when the Pentagon chose Trumbo, along with seven other writers, to visit the war's Pacific theater as correspondents. As he toured the South Pacific, Trumbo became more and more horrified by the devastation he witnessed. In Manila, for example, he was appalled to see families getting their drinking water from sewers. He wrote about his travels to his wife, Cleo, focusing largely on the suffering of locals rather than on the American troops with whom he was traveling. Suddenly, Trumbo found himself more sympathetic to the left-wing extremist that he'd previously scorned. The U.S. was fighting a just war against the Nazis, but in Trumbo's view, America seemed to be leaving half the world a wreck in the process. He wondered if maybe it was time for a revolution. Even after completing his tour of the Pacific Theater, Trumbo still didn't become a communist true believer. He remained largely inactive in party business, but he came to the conclusion that fascism was the root issue responsible for so much of the world's suffering. Therefore, he believed his most important duty as an American was to prevent fascism from gaining power in the United States, as he worried it soon might. Trumbo's worst fear was a third world war, following right on the heels of the second one. In an attempt to prevent this calamity, he took to his typewriter. 
In a 1946 essay for Script magazine, Trumbo imagined himself in a theoretical parallel universe where the roles of the Soviets and the USA were reversed, giving Russia a navy greater than all the navies of the world combined, and the greatest air force in the world, and the most destructive bomb, and the most powerful allies, and the greatest industrial capacity. Trumbo concluded that in such a world, he would be quite terrified of Russia. Therefore, in the real world, he found it reasonable for Russians to be terrified of the United States. He made similar points via the in-house journal of the Screenwriters Guild, Screenwriter, which he edited for nearly two years. Both in his own essays and in several he published, Trumbo advocated against fascism and for a democratic peace. Many of his fellow Guild members agreed, and under Trumbo's tenure, 19 articles by communists appeared in Screenwriter. However, that number represented less than 18% of the 108 total articles he published. Most issues contained at most one piece by a Communist Party member, alongside many other articles by members of the mainstream political parties. But this was the era of the Red Scare, a period of widespread American paranoia about communism. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover stoked the flames of fear by warning Americans about, quote, reds under every bed. And in Congress, the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, was rapidly gaining power and influence. Founded in 1938, The HUAC was initially intended to investigate both communist and fascist radicals. But after World War II, it became dedicated to the ritual interrogation of suspected communists. Committee members, including, among others, Congressman Richard Nixon, issued subpoenas to just about anyone whose views they considered suspicious. Their style of interrogation was often lampooned in liberal circles with the analogy, when did you stop beating your wife? In other words, the HUAC worded its questions so there was no good answer. Even refusing to answer didn't work, as people who resisted questioning were publicly branded reds. As Trumbo continued his anti-fascist organizing, he knew the HUAC might well have made him a target. Years earlier, he argued with his bosses at film studios about the morals clause in his contracts. He already anticipated that he might someday be publicly chastised for his politics. If and when that day came, he didn't want to be fired too. But his efforts were in vain. Fearing even more government oversight, the film industry was perfectly willing to throw writers to the HUAC wolves. They likely hoped sacrificing a few of their own would prevent Congress from passing broad censorship legislation. So MGM kept the morals clause. Not only that, they failed to defend Trumbo later that year when the Hollywood Reporter published a column calling him a communist. Titled, A Vote for Joe Stalin, the piece was the basis for the first film industry blacklist of suspected reds. All this at a time when communism was, in fact, perfectly legal in the USA. But the powerful HUAC used its platform for fear-mongering, pushing a conspiracy theory that communists had infiltrated every level of American society. 
They argued that the only way to prevent the United States from becoming a communist dictatorship was to ferret out the Reds one by one, starting with those in Hollywood. In 1947, the HUAC announced it would begin investigating communism in the film industry. It sent a subcommittee to Los Angeles to question suspects. Hollywood and Trumbo fought back. On May 19, 1947, Catherine Hepburn addressed a 28,000-person progressive rally at Gilmore Stadium, warning, silence the artist and you have silenced the most articulate voice the people have. It's rumored that Trumbo wrote her incisive speech. But the Red Scare train was already rolling across America, crushing anyone who dared stand in its way. By this point, Trumbo either knew or strongly suspected that the FBI was monitoring him. He adopted the habit of shouting at the FBI whenever he took a phone call, chastising them for tapping the phones of an American citizen. Trumbo also began openly fighting back against the activities of the HUAC, which he considered to be a form of thought control and intellectual terror. He also pointed out the committee's anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism, along with its general hatred of free speech. Trumbo's furious public assault on the HUAC struck some in Hollywood as paranoid. But as the saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. And of course, they were out to get him, as the FBI had been since 1939. On September 21, 1947, it finally happened. Trumbo and 40 others in the film industry were called to appear before the full HUAC in Washington. A deputy U.S. marshal drove out to Trumbo's ranch to serve him with the subpoena in person. Trumbo received the long-expected news with aplomb. He even took time to offer the marshal a cold glass of water. He handled it so calmly that, at first, his three young children didn't realize what a momentous occasion it was. It wasn't until later that evening, when Trumbo warned his family he might be going to jail, that the true stakes became clear. Communism itself still wasn't a crime, but Trumbo intended to resist the committee's attempts to pressure him into a confession. He also was committed to not revealing the names of any other communists, which he certainly would be asked to do. His recalcitrance had already put him on a list of witnesses expected to be hostile. The HUAC would be looking for any excuse to accuse him of perjury or contempt of Congress. With the battle lines drawn, Trumbo set off for Washington in October of 1947. Along with the other witnesses on the hostile list, he'd become known as one of the 19. Some of them really were communists, some were ex-communists, and some simply believed the HUAC was overreaching. But all agreed the hostile witnesses would be stronger as a united front. The 19 held talks amongst themselves before their hearings began, strategizing for how to best resist the HUAC's high-pressure tactics without being jailed. Targets of the HUAC's investigations in other industries had been blacklisted, and they feared the same would happen in Hollywood. 
But on October 19th, the day before the hearings began, a studio attorney promised that none of the witnesses would lose a job or be blacklisted as a result of their testimony. Armed with the belief that their livelihoods were secure, the 19 began their testimony. Though 42-year-old Trumbo wasn't scheduled to testify for a week, he addressed the nation by radio on the 20th, labeling the HUAC hostile to the Constitution of the United States and a conspiracy against the American people and their government. Bold words for someone already in their crosshairs. When Trumbo finally took the stand on October 28th, the committee was eager to fire back. If he was a hostile witness, the congressmen assembled to interrogate him were far more hostile examiners. First, the committee denied Trumbo the opportunity to read an opening statement defending himself in his own words. Then, they rejected evidence he offered to introduce, including statements in support of his work from General Hap Arnold and a Los Angeles municipal judge. And when their questioning began, the committee tried to limit Trumbo to yes or no answers, a tall order for someone with Trumbo's gift for prose. Trumbo was steaming by the time they got around to the defining question of all HUAC hearings. Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? The HUAC loved to ask that one. A yes answer was permission to declare someone un-American and blacklist them. A no answer was a green light to charge them with perjury if the committee could prove the witness was lying. And if the witness tried to evade the question, he could be charged with contempt of Congress. Trumbo chose the third option. Instead of answering yes or no, he asked rhetorical questions and demanded to see the evidence against him. He even argued with the committee about whether or not it was constitutional to ask such a question. Are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Chairman, uh, first I should like to know whether the quality of my last answer was acceptable, since I am still on the stand. This had nothing to do with your last oh, answer, the last I question. See. This is a new question. I now. see. Mr. Stripling, you must have some reason for asking you, me this question. You, you can address the You do. Uh, I understand that members of the press have been given an alleged Communist Party card belonging to me. Is that true? No, that's not true. You're not asking the question. Even in the face of condemnation and interrogation, Trumbo didn't lose his sense of humor. But wit and eloquence couldn't negate the fact that Trumbo was up the river without a paddle. As he left the witness stand, he lost his cool for a moment and accused the committee of creating an American concentration camp. Naturally, men who considered themselves to be the greatest patriots in the nation didn't take that well. By the time the hearings adjourned on October 30th, the original 19 hostile witnesses had been whittled down to 10, including Trumbo. Now nicknamed the Hollywood 10, the group was roundly denounced in center-right media. All 10 were charged with contempt of Congress by the end of November. Trumbo began making preparations for his trial, though he didn't yet realize what a high price he'd pay for his resistance. That's coming up next. And now back to the story. 
In November of 1947, the Hollywood Ten were charged with contempt of Congress after resisting interrogation by the House Un-American Activities Committee. When Dalton Trumbo flew home to his Central California ranch, he set about putting his financial house in order. He anticipated significant economic fallout for his courage. Even when he was making thousands per week, Trumbo had never been good with money. Now he was facing a possible drought, and he hadn't even paid his bills for a recent renovation of his ranch yet. So his first priority was making some money. If financial restraint was his weakness, productivity, as always, was his strength. Even with federal charges hanging over his head, Trumbo continued to write. And at first, there was work for him. His MGM contract was extended on November 6, 1947. On the same day he got that good news, Trumbo received some less welcome updates from his union. The Screenwriters Guild would not assist Trumbo or any other Hollywood 10 members in mounting a legal defense. And in the same week his contract was renewed, Trumbo received a firm scolding from MGM's director of public relations, who told him that he was now broadly considered to be a known communist. MGM wanted him to put out a public statement repudiating communism. Trumbo hadn't been scared of Richard Nixon staring him down in Congress, and he wasn't about to be intimidated by a PR hack. He refused and angrily told the PR director that if he lost his screenwriting job, he'd just go back to doing what he had done before. It almost came to that. On November 26, 1947, Eric Johnston of the Motion Picture Association of America declared that the major film studios would temporarily not employ any of the Hollywood Ten. To get off the blacklist, each man would have to be acquitted of his contempt charges and swear an oath that he was not a member of the Communist Party. Investigated, interrogated, abandoned by his union, and now publicly blacklisted, Dalton Trumbo was not having a good month. By December 2nd, Trumbo was formally suspended without pay from MGM. Still, he refused to even consider signing an anti-communist affidavit. He was simply not capable of lying or of betraying his friends. Trumbo was now persona non grata, not just in his industry, but in America as a whole. Later that month, he was denied a passport on the grounds that he might attempt to flee the country. By the end of 1947, Trumbo accepted a contract with the infamous King Brothers to work on the screenplay for Gun Crazy, under a pseudonym, for just $3,750. Months of work for less than he used to make in a week. Over the next year, Trumbo holed himself up on the ranch and drifted away, not only from Hollywood, but from the Communist Party, too. There was no dramatic breakup. He just slowly went from attending meetings sporadically to not at all. Perhaps his financial stresses left him without much energy for political organizing. Though he managed to earn over $34,000, mostly from residuals, in 1948, worth over $360,000 today, he couldn't seem to live within his means. Trumbo was forced to borrow money to cover his personal expenses and his mounting legal bills. 
On December 5, 1948, after a lengthy investigation and legal battle, Trumbo and the rest of the Hollywood Ten were finally indicted for contempt of Congress. A trial was set for the next April. Although Trumbo had low expectations of Congress, he still placed some faith in the court system. He truly believed that the First Amendment protected his right to keep his political affiliations to himself. So he thought the courts would have no choice but to throw out the charges. He thought wrong. In March, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia opined that Congress should have the power to identify individuals who believe in communism and those who belong to the party. This ruling destroyed Trumbo's planned defense and left him no time to plan another one. Trumbo's trial began on April 29th. On May 5th, the jury quickly returned a guilty verdict. Trumbo had no quibble with the jury. He later said, it was a completely just verdict. I had contempt for that Congress, and I have had contempt for several since. Of course, if simply feeling contempt towards politicians was a crime, most people would be in jail. Quips aside, Trumbo was in real trouble, and he knew it. He directed his lawyers to appeal his conviction as far as possible, even to the Supreme Court. On May 21st, Trumbo was sentenced to one year in prison. But he remained a free man while his lawyers tried to overturn his conviction and sentencing. He spent his reprieve frantically trying to earn some money. As a direct result of the Red Scare, a well-known black market for scripts had sprung up in Hollywood. The industry didn't actually want to stop making films by its best and most reliable writers. It just wanted to pay them less and have nothing to do with them in public. In order to fly under the radar, Trumbo's agent paired him up with another, newer writer, Millard Kaufman. Their deal was that Trumbo would write scripts using Kaufman as a front, and their agent, George Wilner, would sell them. In this way, Trumbo soon made $35,000 without using his own name or reputation. He was gratified to know that his work was still good enough to command a high price, even when nobody knew it was his. In August of 1949, Trumbo started working on what would become arguably his most famous script, Roman Holiday. He was working 13 to 14 hours a day, taking sedatives to fall asleep after frantic days in front of his typewriter, and then taking uppers to get himself going again in the morning. He was desperate because in his heart, he knew his appeal was doomed. Writing Roman Holiday was his only form of escape and his best shot at providing for his family when he inevitably went to prison. Fittingly, the story itself was one of escape. A princess, ultimately played by Audrey Hepburn, decides to see Rome on her own without the usual trappings of royalty. Along the way, she falls in love with a reporter who helps her before knowing her true identity. But in the end, she must leave her new beau behind to return to her royal duties, just as, in the end, Dalton Trumbo had to face the facts of his own life. 
On April 10, 1950, the Supreme Court declined to hear Trumbo's appeal. His last shot at freedom was gone. Now the only thing left to do was get his family ready to spend a year without him. In early June, Trumbo attended a number of parties given in his honor. As much as he was despised on the right, Trumbo had become a folk hero of the American left. He attended a rally at Madison Square Garden, sponsored by the New York Civil Rights Congress. Then, with more than a thousand fans in attendance to wish him well, he boarded a train from Penn Station to Washington, D.C. Upon arriving in the nation's capital, Trumbo was promptly booked and confined to the district jail. On June 20th, he was transferred to Ashland, Kentucky, to serve out his sentence as prisoner number 7551. Prison was not altogether a bad experience for Trumbo. While he often felt depressed, he got much more rest there than at home, since he had no typewriter on which to pound out screenplays. He found the facility clean, the food acceptable, and the dull routine bearable. His only real regret was that he'd spent so much money and now was left to worry about his family falling into poverty without their provider. After his release in 1951, Trumbo moved his family to Mexico City, where he continued to work under various pseudonyms. While he was in exile, Roman Holiday went into production and was released in 1953. It was a smashing success and won the Academy Award for Best Story, though sadly, Trumbo couldn't claim it himself. It would be years before the Academy found out they'd given the statuette to Hollywood's most notorious commie. Perhaps encouraged by Hollywood's willingness to buy his work, if not his name, 49-year-old Trumbo returned to Los Angeles in 1954. He warned his children that they must keep very quiet about his writing and about the famous people who visited their home. Trumbo kept churning out scripts. Every word was his, except the two on the title page that followed, written by. In fact, he was at the peak of his talents during his time on the blacklist, as he proved with The Brave One, written under the pseudonym Robert Rich and released in 1956. In 1957, The Brave One snagged Trumbo's second Best Story Academy Award, or rather, Robert Rich's first. But this time, the press started digging. It was widely known among Hollywood insiders that blacklisted writers were working under pseudonyms. So when no actual Robert Rich appeared to accept his Oscar, journalists suspected Trumbo was the real writer. Trumbo wouldn't confirm or deny that he'd written The Brave One, but he admitted he'd been working in secret. He even joked that he liked things better this way because people couldn't hold him accountable when he wrote stinkers. While he was joshing with reporters, Trumbo was also busy writing Spartacus, which was directed by Stanley Kubrick and starred Kirk Douglas. The latter became an outspoken champion of Trumbo's and began urging his Hollywood colleagues to end the blacklist. Between media scrutiny, the slow end of the Red Scare, and Douglas's tireless advocacy for his friend, the blacklist finally lost its power. Studios just stopped paying attention to it. 
1960, Trumbo was publicly credited for both Spartacus and another film he wrote that year, Exodus. As Spartacus roared into the box office with a massive opening weekend, Trumbo was welcomed back into his labor union. Trumbo was gracious about his readmission, but couldn't shake the sour taste of hypocrisy. Instead of defending him, his union hung him out to dry when his employer blacklisted him. It only took him back once doing so was the easy choice. For the rest of his career, Dalton Trumbo wrote under his own name. However, it's generally acknowledged that he was at his best during the blacklist years. Writing anonymously gave him a total freedom that he never quite found again. In 1971, Trumbo's award-winning novel, Johnny Got His Gun, was finally adapted into a movie. It won the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes, along with many other awards. And in 1975, the Academy finally presented Trumbo with his long-overdue 1957 Oscar for The Brave One. At the age of 70, he finally had a statuette to put on the mantle. Today, most people believe that the HUAC was overreaching, guilty of a tyrannical witch hunt, and ironically, itself un-American. For the crime of wanting to believe in a system of government that didn't put profits over people, Trumbo was exiled and nearly ruined. But in the end, his enemies only made him a more outspoken defender of free speech and a better artist. Not to mention, they gave him a chance to prove that his raw talent, not his fame, was responsible for his success. Even under a false name, he was at the vanguard of his industry. Thanks again for tuning in to Falls from Grace. We'll be back next week with two new episodes on sports stars whose names were tarnished by scandals. Lance Armstrong and O.J. Simpson. You can find more episodes of Falls from Grace and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another story of remarkable success and even more remarkable downfall. Falls from Grace was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Falls from Grace was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>